Hey everyone, before you dive into this week's teaching from Pastor Chris, we just wanted to say thanks so much for listening. If you find this podcast to be encouraging or helpful in growing deeper in your faith, would you take a few seconds and share it with someone? They too could be needing the very same thing that you received. Again, thanks for listening and we pray that you have a wonderful day. We are continuing our masterclass series covering the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I have not watched these masterclass videos. I've previewed a lot of them. Um, we, Pastor Chris introduced this last week. This masterclass title is from a real-life thing called Masterclass, where you can learn from experts in their fields, like Gordon Ramsay for cooking and so forth. That's the only one I really want to see is I want to see Gordon Ramsay make the perfect omelet, uh, and apparently he shows you how to do that in these videos. Um, and so, but I get excited about learning from experts. I think there's something really cool and intriguing and kind of awe-inspiring about learning from the expert in a field, someone who has dedicated their time and their life to learning everything there is to know about whatever craft and then teaching you something. I just think that is really cool. Um, For example, like in in these things, you just realize learning from an expert what it takes, right? So uh, my wife, she didn't know I was about to say this, but she dabbles in some watercoloring a little bit, and uh, she makes really cool stuff and like calligraphy. And there's been times where I've sat down and I've painted with her. And at the end of our time, I'm look, look at hers. I'm like, that's so awesome. Look at that. That's amazing. You did this cool thing and you wrote some cool words. And I'll look at mine. I'll be like, wow. I think I've been drawing the same thing since sixth grade. Like, it does not look any different. I have not improved at all. Um, and so there's just a range of skill. And then you go to like a museum and you go and see these priceless paintings on the wall, right? And and I don't, I've only painted, you know, for a few hours in my life, but I would, just because I've taken a brush and I've dipped it in paint and I've tried to do something and then I go to a museum, I'm like, I know that that takes a lot of skill. I don't even know everything, but I've tried enough to know that that's amazing. And so you, I just think that that's so cool to learn if that, that painter would be able to say, hey, I'm going to teach you how to do that. I'd be like, wow, you are the best. I saw your paintings in the museum. This would be amazing to learn from you. Um, So there's something awe-inspiring, an awe-inspiring factor that comes in when someone who uh, knows everything about it is able to teach other people about what they know. Um, Also, this is just, I was telling someone else this morning, uh, I started dabbling in piano just recently. Uh, Nothing amazing, like just I'm YouTubing certain notes and pushing certain keys. It's really elementary. And my wife is being very gracious. She's like, oh, that sounds lovely. And I'm like, ha-ha, sweet. Um, I know it doesn't. Um, <laughs> but to come here and see, like, even our worship band, just play amazing music. And you just, you're just like, wow, this, it takes so much. Um, and if one of them were to teach me, I'd be so thankful. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's why these masterclass videos you can go by online, I think are so cool. You get behind the scenes into what it means to do something at a mastery level. And that's why I love this series that we're going through on the Sermon on the Mount, because this is a series where as Christians, as people who have some experience in faith, uh, as a little experience or as a lot of experience, if you've just met Jesus in the last couple of years or you've been walking with him all your life, uh, we get to learn from the master himself. We get to learn from the expert whose knowledge and understanding and ability in this realm far surpass anyone else's. I mean, we get to learn from the creator, the one who created everything, right, from God. So this is incredible. I hope uh, that we just soak this up. We need this. This is the ultimate masterclass on, on how to be human and how to be human in a way that God intended us to be. 
And he'll speak to his kingdom too on how to be uh, Christ-like people together under God's rule, his church. And we'll see from this series, especially in portions that we'll cover, uh, like we'll cover today, that the kingdom of God is very different from the other kingdoms of this world. We keep saying that because we want uh, you to pick up on the fact that it's, it's just different than anything we see in the world around us. So let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in. Would you guys bow your heads with me? God, thank you for the opportunity to gather together on Sunday uh, today, Lord, as we want to just pause and uh, Sabbath a bit here and just rest and rest in you. And so we pray that through, uh, through the music, through the worship, through uh, the preaching of your word, that we would be drawn closer to you, God. And as we leave this morning, that we would be um, empowered and encouraged to follow you with everything that we have. Bless this time that we have together this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew 5 this morning, starting in verse 17. And in this first section, uh, Jesus is going to state what this sermon is all about, the Sermon on the Mount, his purpose of saying these words. He's going to reveal what that is. So let me, you guys can follow along, I think, on the screen. I'm going to start in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is taking time here to reiterate to his disciples, to the people, his purpose. Jesus is making it very clear that he has come to fulfill the law. And many think, many scholars think that this section was included because there was a thought going around. There was a rumor going around that the Old Testament was no longer needed. That the law of God that uh, had been given to Israel thousands of years before, hundreds of years before, was just, you don't need that, all you need is Jesus' teaching. And Jesus wanted to make sure that people knew that God's law is still relevant, is still important, it still has a role to play. So he says in verse 17, he hasn't come to abolish anything, but to fulfill it. And so what Jesus will do here in the Sermon on the Mount is more of a reframing. And uh, more accurately, not just a reframing of the law, but a reframing of people's minds, of their perspective of the law. His purpose is to uh, bridge this gap that had been created, this gap in understanding of God's law and how it was intended to bring people closer to God and be his representatives on earth. But the way that the law was being lived out, the way that the law was viewed, was not pointing people to God Instead, it was pointing people to people. It was pointing people to their own holiness, to their own ability and how to accomplish the law. And this was embodied in the Pharisees. These Pharisees, these teachers of the law, had constructed a view uh, of the law that put the emphasis on their own ability to accomplish holiness. God was not needed in their faith. It all depended on how much they could do out of their own strength. We'll come back uh, to unpack more of that later. But Jesus states here in this first section that he has come to fulfill the law. And this word fulfill 
really means is talking about uh, Jesus will make complete. Jesus will make whole this picture of the law. He's going to course correct people's perspectives in order that they can abide truly the way God intended. That's his purpose. Now, when we think of the word law today, we probably think of a lot of strict rules and regulations, right? A lot of things that you cannot do. You know, do not speed, don't break and enter, uh, do not steal, do not fill in the blank. Just don't do a a bunch of things. And God's law can be kind of similar. You know, in in the Ten Commandments, it says, don't have any other gods before me, do not murder. Uh, But in every one of God's commands that says not to do something, there's also a path for a more positive angle and a, a path to move closer to God. Let me explain. Like in, like in the Ten Commandments, it says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That is a negative, right? Don't do something. But the other side of that is a positive where it says, keep God where God needs to be. These other gods don't need to be in the place that God should be at. So the inverse of that, if we were to say it in another way, is keep God in God's place. And in that, we'll be drawing closer to him. So God intended in each of his laws a way for people to draw closer to him. And we'll see in this passage throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and really in any of Jesus' teachings, that this is God's desire, that they would see his law as a way to grow closer to him. That people would draw near to him, would be like him, would love like him, and just emulate all of his characteristics. This is a part of Jesus' purpose here, is to help his followers see this. Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is taking what they knew, they were all familiar with the law of the Old Testament, and flipping it on its head. And he's just showing how God's kingdom is different. It's upside down compared to the other kingdoms of this world. And as Pastor Chris mentioned last week, part of this purpose of saying it to the disciples was to make sure that they knew what they were getting into. Because there was this thought before Jesus had appeared that they knew that a Savior was coming. And there was a thought that maybe he was going to establish an earthly kingdom. We've been, the Jewish people have been suppressed by the Roman Empire. They're like, maybe this Savior is going to free us from that. And we are going to have an earthly kingdom, like back in King David. It's going to be the glory days all over again. And Jesus is trying to clarify, it's not, it may not be what you think it is. My kingdom may not look what you thought the kingdom was going to look like. I don't know if you've ever gotten involved in something that you thought was one thing, and it turned out to be another. Sometimes that can be a bad experience. Sometimes it's good. You're like, oh, this was better than I expected, or this was different than I expected. For me, uh, quick story, this was my involvement in getting, or this was my story of becoming involved at church. I had just graduated. I was 20, 21 years old from graduating from college and had a conversation slash interview with a mentor and pastor of the church I used to work at. And I just laid out on the table. I was like, man, I want to do this. I want to do this, this, and this. I want to like usher in this new era of church for this church that I worked at. And he was like, oh, it's so good. And I'm sitting there like, sweet. Got the gig. I'm going to do this thing. And he was like, sounds great, but actually our need is youth ministry. And I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, Youth ministry, junior hires, high schoolers, not on my radar. Never once thought about uh, doing church uh, and working in that position. Um, I was just figuring this out as I was going anyways. And he's like, yeah, the, the need is we have a bunch of students that they need a youth pastor. And I was like, oh, but what about all the stuff I said? And he's like, yeah, maybe eventually. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and it turned out to be great. It's fantastic. And I love doing youth ministry to this day. But it, I, I'm glad that he took the time to readjust my expectations to say, hey, you think it was this. I'm telling you it's actually going to be this. 
And the disciples are picking up on this and saying, all right, so it's not what we thought, maybe, of an earthly kingdom. So, again, just to reiterate, Jesus' purpose here is to reveal the purpose of his law, which is to bring people closer to God. And when people follow the law, when they obey God's law and live by it, then they are being a light to the world. And they're being a model of what God intended humanity to be. They're being his representatives and partners in his kingdom. So what follows after verse 20 are key examples of Jesus reframing the law for his disciples. He takes what they know, what the law currently is and how they understand it, and he kind of takes it apart and puts it back together correctly for them and tells them this is actually what God's law meant. He's reframing the law, taking all the pieces that God already gave in the Old Testament that were correct. He's not adding to them. He's just rearranging it in people's minds to have a right understanding. It's like if you were to get a Lego set, and the Lego set on the box shows a car. And you're like, I don't need instructions. I'm going to build a car. And you could probably build a car. There's wheels, and there's like a little plastic seat and a steering wheel, and you could probably assemble some kind of Lego configuration that looks like a car and rolls around. But what if the creator, who was back at like Lego headquarters, was like, hey, I made this car, and I'm going to tell you how to really build it. And he comes over, and he assembles it, and you're like, oh my goodness, that is the picture perfect of what the car is supposed to be. So it's kind of like that. That analogy falls apart. Don't go too deep into it. But Jesus is saying, all the pieces were there. You came to a different conclusion. I'm going to help you reassemble this so that you have the end product of what was God meant. Israelites had the law, and they came to a different conclusion. The Pharisees really represented this current construction of the law. They had built this system of what faith and religion should look like, and they loved it. And before you cast any judgment on the Pharisees, we are guilty of the same thing today. However long you've been walking with God in your faith, along the way you pick up these pieces of what you think faith should be, and you build what, your faith should, what you think your faith should look like. And hopefully, a lot of times, we get it right. We're like, yes, that's what God intended. But some things may be off. And over time, as we are always disciples for the rest of our lives of God, we learn, oh, I wasn't doing that right, or that's not what God really wanted me to do. I need to do it like this. And so this, uh, oh, yeah, some things like this, uh, they happen. Like, we, they start from the Bible, and then they get off course. That's why we have things like workspace faith or prosperity gospel. Things that started in Scripture, but along the way the pieces were put together in a way that the end product really isn't what God intended. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he's taking the time to make sure that the pieces are arranged correctly. He's reframing it for his followers. So let's take a look at this. Uh, we're covering a lot today. We're not going to read every verse. But what follows are examples of this. So let's start in verse 21 talking about murder. And Jesus says, we'll see a pattern here develop. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, this is probably what we understand today too. Murdering's bad, don't do it. But Jesus reframes it. He goes even further. He takes the pieces and he says in verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to the judgment. Again, who say, uh, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So, he's adding, he's not adding, sorry, he's, he's 
clarifying what this whole law is about. He brings up the term raka, which is an Aramaic term for contempt. And this feeling of contempt is feeling that you are above someone, that the people that offended you are less than you. And he's saying that's the root issue of the sin. In, in God's eyes, everyone is equal. We're all sinners in need of a savior. You are not meant to think that you are better than anyone else. And murder is this ultimate act of thinking that you are worth more and have the capability to take someone else's life that you think deserves judgment. And Jesus is saying that way before murder is the thought that you are better than someone else. And that is where the sin is. Way before the act, way before the deed takes place, there's a heart issue, and that's what Jesus wants to address. Okay, we'll move on to adultery. Again, this is a good law. It says in verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Okay, that's the law. Again, we probably know of something similar. And Jesus is going to clarify, he's going to take the pieces And he's going to say in verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this is probably a verses that you have heard before. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So just the thought, when your heart and mind are going down that road, adulterous thoughts, before you even acted upon it, Jesus is saying that's still a sin. Keep yourself from even thinking and desiring those, those lustful and adulterous thoughts in your heart and mind. Jesus isn't just trying to keep uh, inappropriate sexual acts from happening. He's caring about what's inside a person's heart, making sure that person loves the people that they are supposed to love. He's reframing the law. I hope we see the pattern here developing. Here's what they understood, which was maybe partially correct. There's some good in it, but it's not the whole thing. Jesus is expanding their view to say it actually means all of this. Verse 31, talking about divorce, it says, It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Okay? This is a standard that is probably most accurately, like it's, it's very accurate today. We have a very low standard. of A lot of people can get divorced for very like, little reason. And Jesus is saying, But I tell you, verse 32, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is saying that the bar is so much higher. Don't do that unless it meets the specific circumstances. Other than that, you must acknowledge the covenant made between you, your spouse, and God. He's expanding, he's clarifying, he's bringing... Uh, a deeper understanding of what this law really is saying. Again, getting into what is in the heart, not just the actions that are taken. The next section about O's, which is something that uh, I don't think we have a lot of laws about today. But in this culture, it was very important. And verse 33 says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill, the Lord, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. It's the current understanding, which is saying, if you say something, uh, do it. And Jesus says, reframes it, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. 
So to unpack this a bit would lead us to see that Jesus is addressing the issue of being trustworthy. People back then, oaths were a big deal. Your word meant a lot. They didn't have necessarily signed contracts like we do, like, hey, we never signed on it. We just shook, so it doesn't mean that much. For them, their word was everything. It was the contract. And there was a lot of people who were trying to um, just kind of be slippery and say, yes, I said that, but whatever, whatever. And Jesus is saying, hey, instead of that, instead of trying to just get your way, why don't you try to be trustworthy? And as trustworthy as possible, in your heart, why don't you uphold your word? Don't worry about swearing on anything. Just if you say you're going to do it, do it. The next section, this pattern is continuing, is, it's getting harder and harder, by the way, an eye for an eye. And he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I mean, the world today still operates by this, right? What's fair is fair. Happens to me, it's got to happen to you. Something, you did something, I get to do something. You get your shot, I get my shot. Jesus says, in verse 39, I don't know if you're ready for this, because it's hard, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is very different from what the world says should happen. This is completely upside down. It's less about reciprocity and fairness and Jesus is emphasizing a heart that is for someone else, even when that person is being really unfair and really nasty about it. Jesus is saying that we should value someone else's needs and desires above our own. It's a radically unselfish attitude towards what we have and what is ours. One scholar writes uh, a summary that Jesus is saying, the principle is the needs of others come before our convenience. I don't like that. I don't, <laughs> that's not natural. I want to take care of me. I like the airplane version. Take care of yourself, then help those next to you. <laughs> airplane should still operate by that. Don't do like, yeah. <laughs> in a world, in a culture where we always put ourselves and our family's needs first, this is going against the grain. This is really tough. But this is what would come to define the church. The early church made a name for caring for people without getting anything in response, uh, for caring for people, for the people who persecuted them. And then if it couldn't get any harder, we end this section of reframing the law with the hardest one yet, the most backwards one yet, to love our enemies. Jesus says in verse 43, or Summaries, oh, yeah, okay, verse 43 says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, this makes sense. This is what, even today, how the world operates. Those who are against you, they're against me, so I got to be against them. And Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? 
Jesus reframes this love for our enemies by saying we need to pray for them, going above and beyond what the standard was. And this love for enemies isn't just a passive thought of like, well, I won't wish bad on them anymore. I'll just be neutral. Be like, whatever happens, happens. No, he's saying you need to desire good for them. He knows that his disciples in the future will face persecution. He knows what's coming for them. And he's trying to train them and re, uh, rewire their minds so that even in the persecution, his disciples will have love for their persecutors. And Jesus, God, makes an ultimate example of this out of Paul, right? Paul later will be persecuting God's church and God reaches out to him and loves him, loves his own enemy. This is what we are called to do. This loving our enemy gets to our desire that everyone on earth would come to know and be saved by God. Do we have that desire? Do we really have that desire within us? Or have in our minds, have we sectioned off people who are like, God's love is for everyone, but these, because I don't like them. They're the worst. No love from God for them. We laugh. I mean, sometimes we do that subconsciously. So, we covered a lot in very little time. There's a lot of reframing, and we could preach on each section like that for, you know, weeks at a time. But hopefully we see this pattern, that there was a law, it was understood in one way, and Jesus is expanding in their understanding and clarity of what it really means. And so just as the disciples needed Jesus to dismantle some of their incorrect understanding of the law, we too may need Jesus to restructure how we have assembled our faith and make it right. Right? Maybe we need to focus on the positive, how to draw closer to God, and not just focus on, well, here's what I should not be doing. After all this, this is a lot, Jesus ends with a very high calling where he'll make it clear how this is all possible. And in this next section, in this next verse, he is uh, recentering their hearts around God. In verse 48, Jesus calls people to be like God, which he did in, back in Leviticus in the Old Testament. God said, be holy for I am holy. And now Jesus is saying in verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He repeats it to his disciples, trying to reorient, recenter their hearts around God instead of themselves. I mentioned this before. The way that people understood the law made it totally dependent on their own ability to accomplish it. We have a term for that these days. We call it a workspace faith. Whatever good works you do will earn you more favor in the eyes of God. The problem is that the workspace faith takes power away from Jesus and is humanity's attempt to be in control. It's saying, God, I don't need you. I got this. I got my faith. I'll, I'll earn my way to heaven, which we can't. And honestly, this is not just a problem that the Israelites and the Jews and the early church had. This is a problem that was dealt with in the Reformation hundreds of years ago. This will be a problem that will always exist. This, there's a tension and struggle of being self-sufficient and being dependent on God. Those two are hard. They don't coexist naturally. We have to really try to submit to God. So Jesus is teaching us that the law requires us to be dependent on him. We cannot do this on our own. Earlier in our passage, verse 20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees were considered the holiest of the holy at that time. 
And to be holier than them was hyperbole. It was impossible. How do you be holier than the holy people? And that's the point. To be upholding the law as Christ portrays it, it's not possible on our own. We need Christ. Jesus is saying, you thought the bar was right here. The bar is actually up here. It's, and it makes you depend on me. Imagine playing basketball. Think, you're like, you're, I'm legit at basketball. You're like, I'm a basketball player. I'm the best basketball player. Only to find out that you've been playing with the Little Tykes basketball hoop and like the Little Tykes basketball. And you find out that like there's an NBA league and they're like seven footers and a 10 foot hoop and a bigger ball. And you're like, oh, this, I cannot do this. This is not possible. Jesus is saying, yeah, that's exactly right. You need me. You can't do this on your own. The bar has been moved. It's so much harder. And there's less of a chance for people like the Pharisees to elevate themselves over others because of their holiness, which is what the Pharisees were known to do. Like, I am better than you. I am holier than you. Because look at how I'm doing. I'm abiding by God's law. It's leveling the playing field by saying everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs Jesus the same amount. In order to live the way God intended humanity to live, it requires Jesus. In all of these examples that we covered, he is recentering them around God and who he is. He's reframing them not just on their actions. It's not just what you do, but it's what inside, what's inside your heart that Jesus cares about. This is why the Pharisees were later called whitewashed tombs. Matthew 23, Jesus lets them have it. He's sick of them at this point. They're very annoying. They're against him. And he's saying, look, on the outside, they look good. They do all the right things, right? They're the Pharisees. They're holy. But on the inside, he says, they are bones and everything unclean. He says, in the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as, right, uh, as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be so caught up in just appearing good by doing all the right things, when on the inside, we could be corrupt, full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus cares about our actions, but also about what's in our hearts. He wants our hearts to be fully for God. In each of these examples of murder, adultery, all of these, he's reframing their minds to emphasize the need for God's love, a love that reaches beyond human capacity, a love that restores, a love that seeks to serve others, to treat them as God treats humanity. It's dealing with the heart. So while we may not murder, Jesus doesn't want us to murder, but he also doesn't want us to be thinking that we're better than other people. While we may not commit the act of adultery, Jesus is also looking deeper inside the heart and getting at the need for us to love and view others the way that God views them. In the situations of divorce and oaths and vengeance and loving enemies, God is getting at the innate human desire to be selfish, to think only of our needs and wants. And he's calling us to ex instead extend love and grace and a love that isn't based on reciprocity, but a love that comes from God. So we see Jesus reorienting their hearts the of the disciples around God himself. And this passage really shows that God's kingdom is upside down. Right? It was upside down from the current Jewish thinking. It was upside down from the secular world today. And it's upside down from what naturally our sinful hearts want. But really, once we understand what God is trying to do here, we see that it's the world whose kingdom is upside down. We see that it's our view that is upside down from what God intended. And in the end, we'll see that 
the only kingdom that's right side up is God's kingdom. We see how sin has corrupted our vision and understanding of God's truth. So I want to leave you with some questions as we reflect on God's call for us to be like him. Okay, we're almost done. Stay with me. Are you allowing God to reframe areas of your faith that may need to be tweaked here or there? So I want to remind you, following God is a lifelong process. You should not expect that once you become a Christian, you perfectly understand the faith. It is something we dedicate the rest of our lives to, and we won't have perfect understanding until heaven with him. So along the way, expect to have to relearn things, to unlearn bad things, to relearn the right thing. So are you allowing God to reframe some areas of your faith? Are you depending on your own ability to fulfill the Christian life, or are you depending upon God? This idea of earning your way to heaven is a struggle. It creeps in there. We may not be aware of it, but all of a sudden we'll be like, man, I've been really trying to be good for God. And you're forgetting that we need God to be good. And I also want to say this, don't get the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of what the Spirit is doing inside of you, confused with your own accomplishments. When you see after a while, you're like, man, I've been following God, and it's, look what I'm doing. We've already taken a misstep. We need to give that praise to God. God, thank you for what you're doing in my life. This is because of you, not because I'm suddenly a better person. Next, are you loving others the way that God intended, the way Jesus instructed, the way that may go against our selfish desires? We are just naturally selfish. We just are. And so we have to be intentional to love others in a very unselfish way, a radically unselfish way. And then how do your heart and mind need to be reoriented around God and his character instead of your own understanding of how the world works? You see, a deeper understanding of God helps us understand who we need to be. The more we understand who God is, that informs us of the character that we should have, the actions that we should take, the things that we shouldn't do. So today... Guys, I want us to be encouraged in your faith. I don't want this to come down as like a, hey, you're not doing it good enough. I want us to be encouraged that Jesus does not expect you to be perfect on your own. He wants you to come to him, to depend on him, to rely on him. So partner with God in your faith. In your everyday life, in every moment, partner with him. Ask him for help. God, help me get through this moment. Help me to, I'm about to have coffee with a person that it's really, it's really hard to talk with them. Help me. Partner with me as I, as I parent my kids, as I interact with my family, my friends. Bring God into those conversations, into those moments. And as you try to live like Jesus, know that this church, Spring Valley, is with you. We pastors are with you. The elders are with you. We are all needing to depend on Christ equally. And we want to do that together as a church. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your son to teach us to uh, fulfill the law, to help clarify what your teaching means so that we could better be representatives of you on this earth. We want to be a light to the people around us, to our friends, to our family, our coworkers. And we want to understand how your law brings us closer to you. It draws us closer to you. 
God, I pray that we would not be uh, independent in our faith, but we would lay it before you and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. I do view people in contempt. I do act selfishly. Help me not to do that. God, I pray that each and every one of us would leave today empowered, not in our own ability, but in yours, God, knowing that you can do all of this in us through your spirit. You can work and transform our hearts. We pray that you would do that work, continue to do that work. Help us to have reframed uh, understandings of what your law means in our life. You are a good father to us, God. You bless us so much. We pray for that blessing to continue. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you would, please take a moment to subscribe and leave an encouraging review to help others find our podcast on whatever platform you are listening on. We hope you have a wonderful day. We'll catch you next week.